Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito And we welcome you to this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Eric Lopez. Jeff Sharon is off this week. He's actually moving to a new house. Uh, we cannot confirm or deny that the reason why he's moving to a new house is because he lost his old house on a bet on the UCF football game at Tulsa. But I'm glad to report that Brian Murphy is with us on this episode. Back from Tulsa, safe and sound. Murph, how you doing? Good, Elo, and I, I will say that uh, as uh, anybody who listened to last week's show would know, I uh, I did put up a couple of wheelchairs up on the block uh, in this game in Tulsa. I was able to, to get them back and make it home safely, uh, but you do not want to know what I had to go through to get these wheelchairs back. No, no, we don't. Uh, we probably that's probably for the no. best. Coming up on this edition, we'll recap. Yes. We'll share our thoughts. Kind of a post mortem. Now we've we've, we've UCF football losing to Tulsa. They're on a bye week. Uh, what's next as uh, they try to finish up the season? I'll ask Brian. What's the most underplayed uh, angle from that game? What's the most overplayed angle from that game? We're just kind of keep it there because we've mm-hmm. by now we've heard everybody complain and uh, and etc. Also, we'll talk used uh, basketball. Me and Murph were at the uh, men's game against Miami on Tuesday night. Miami won that by nine. The men's team is one and one. What have we? Learned through 80 minutes of the 2019-2020 UCF men's basketball season. Obviously, later in the program, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to recap the men's soccer semifinals in Orlando, UCF Temple. We're going to have a hope to have a guest on from top drawer soccer, Travis Clark, back with us. Where does UCF men's soccer stand uh, with selection Monday upon us there as well as some of the Olympic sports going on at wrap there. And, of course, I, I will be uh, misleading. It is the final weekend of fall ball and baseball and softball, so me and Murph have to touch on that as well. So that's a no-brainer, yes. right? I mean, we got to end on a high it's, note. It, it's a, I mean, it's our duty as uh, baseball, softball enthusiasts. <laughs> yeah, we might just have to, like, trade questions or something. I don't know what we'll do, but uh, you can follow us. <laughs> you can follow us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter and like us as well on Facebook. And, of course, check out Black and Go Banneret. Dot com for all the latest in UCF, including many great feet or articles from Mr. Brian Murphy, including his recap from Tulsa. Of course, that's where we we'll begin. UCF losing to Tulsa on Friday night, 34 to 31. They're now seven and three. They're heading into the bye. I'm not. We're not going to recap the game. You all saw the game. You know, you've you know, you vented your frustrations on social media across the board and everything like that. Um, Murph, you were there. Um, You've had almost now a week to kind of digest it. You've written the recap about it. You've talked to coaches and players about it uh, in the in not only that night, but the days since. As you look back on that, even like, you know, the rest of, you know, the next uh, indefinite period of time, what stands out to you now that you've had a little f- time to think about it? What's the biggest takeaway you have from that Tulsa game? <laughs> 
it's just amazing to me. And Eric, we can probably go back and forth on this topic because this is because the penalties this team has has, has created. You know, it goes back further than just the season. However, however, it is amazing to me how many penalties this team is called for in which they in which aren't in the flow of the play. And this was really the, the crux of my story following the game in that there were so many penalties in this game, 15 for 120, which it was season high in terms of uh, accepted penalties. But so many of them, too, were like false starts or post-play stuff, personal fouls. Obviously, you had the, the last play of the game, which was the too many men on the field, um, which, by the way, they actually had 13 men on the field on that play, not just 12. They had 13 men on the field on that play, uh, which is just uh, mind-boggling. Uh, but the, the, how this keeps happening uh, is really hard to sort of like d- digest and really diagnose, other than just like it's a really undisciplined team. Which I mean, obviously that you had to point to the coaches on that. Like this is this is an undisciplined team, which is sort of nuts to say about a team that is this talented that they. Um, can create so many mistakes that just shoot themselves in the foot. And really, and you wrote about this, so I won't give it away completely away, but you talked about they. If you look at the box scores that you did, a lot of the stuff they did would suggest they did enough to win the game. Uh, they held Tulsa yeah. star player Keelan Stokes to just two catches for 47 yards. Uh, you know, and to me, the, the the interesting liner you used in there, the Knights still lost. In the end, they beat the wrong team. <laughs> uh, yeah. which is a pretty clever line. Um, you know, and, and, and Hypo addressed that afterwards and thinks, here's the problem, right? Like they've, th- th- This is nothing new, like you said. Even like since Scott Frost's first year, UCF has been penalized a lot. The difference is there's not as much room for error now than there was, say, like 2017, right? Murph, you were there in 2017. You could commit nine penalties. Right. It doesn't matter if you're up three, four touchdowns. Nobody cares. The problem is yeah. that margin for error has been reduced big time for various reasons that we can get into. Uh, and as a result now, those penalties are now more emphasized big time now, as we saw in the Tulsa game, right? Absolutely. I mean, you have a lesser margin for error. You have – I would say certainly there's been a quarterback threat downgrade. I mean, Dylan Gabriel is great, but he is not 2017 era McKenzie Milton. He, he is not. Uh, and he is learning still as a freshman on the job. And in these three losses, Eric, it's amazing how his mistakes lead almost directly to UCF losses. He has only thrown interceptions in three games this year. Um, and in, in those three games, UCF has lost all of them. In their seven wins, he is not throwing an interception, which is just kind of nuts. And I, I, you can say it's low-hanging fruit and, and it's sort of fluky, but it just shows you that when he plays poorly, uh, and it's not just him, there's other things that, 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 that force him to play poorly, and we'll get into that too. But when he makes mistakes, it sinks this team with it. Let me ask you this. There's been a lot of chatter uh, across Night Nation through social media. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've gotten you've, – uh, you've been – Thrown with a bunch of questions from night fans. Uh, message boards have been blowing up and all that. And obviously, it's, and by the way, it's very normal 
Uh, I know people are kind of like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe how upset they are. Well, listen, go to any college football team on a Saturday when they lose a game. Like, go to an Alabama message boards. Trust me, it's not pretty right now. Despite the, and then, you know, that's probably the number one program in the last decade dynasty. And yet I saw people saying, man, Nick Saban, it's probably time for him to go after the LSU loss. So, so spare me on everybody that's, like, freaking out over everybody's freaking out. Like, it's part that's college football in a nutshell. Um, so I, I don't get caught up in that. But let me let – me, what is, of all the talk that you've heard and written, seen, read, because there's been columns written and, and some of it is interesting, but nonetheless, um, what has been the most, in your opinion, the most underplayed angle story from this game or even this season, and what's been the most overplayed that people are making way too much out of it? Either way there. Well, I, I don't know how it's overplayed or underplayed. I will say that what is kind of – um, amazing to me coming out of this game that I guess not enough people could be talking about because I think we're all talking about the penalties because there were so many of them and they were so influential on really the decide to play the game. So we got that. Certainly we're talking about Dylan's turnovers because he's the quarterback and when he makes mistakes, especially his second interception, which was a ball that he's trying to throw out of bounds and yet he throws it inbounds. Like it makes no sense. So we got that. But this offensive line, which I mean, there are some new pieces here. But for, for most part, it's a, it's a very veteran, experienced offensive line. They have now seeded 22 sacks this season. In the three losses, they have seeded 15 of those 22 sacks. They, they were sacked six times each against Tulsa and Pitt, three times in Cincinnati. And I, I don't know, again, what happens there uh, to cause this good offensive line to look really just run, get run roughshod over uh, in, these, in these losses, but they have massive breakdowns that not only affect Dylan and, and cause him to make you know decisions that lead to these turnovers, but it, it, it hampers the running game, which you know after Killens' 57-yard touchdown, you didn't really see much of that against a bad run defense. You didn't see them really be able to much, uh, run the ball successfully after halftime. What happens there? I think that is something that I don't know if there's a clear answer to it, and I don't, I don't know if we're going to get one even if we ask hard enough. But it's nuts how this offensive line has been completely overwhelmed in their three losses. No, and especially when people are trying to like – some people were talking about maybe best offensive line they've had there. And that was the kind of yeah. talk coming out of camp and things. Uh, but let me, let me bring – but let me kind of give a couple – maybe throw out a couple theories why and see if you agree with it, disagree, you think it's valid, not valid. Uh, they lost – you know, Wyatt Miller graduated, right? Uh, you know, no Evans in that line. Did we just under – you know, there, I've always been told about this from coaches that offensive line, a lot of it is about chemistry. A lot of it is about cohesiveness. You know, everybody fits. And, you know, is it one of those things where, you know, you lose a couple of guys you may not think are big deals, but those are clogs, and now it, there's some adjustments being made, and maybe this line is just not as good as we, as we thought, and maybe there's been some drop-offs there. I mean, there's some drop-offs, certainly, but you would imagine with a crew yeah. that, you know, for a few of these guys that have been here for at least two years. I mean, obviously, you know, Cole Schneider uh, and Jake Brown and Jordan, Jordan, I mean, Jordan Johnson and Jake Brown are seniors. They've been here a long time. Cole Schneider's in his second year. He's a freshman. He was really a freshman, I think, All-American uh, last year. Uh, Parker Joe, his second year in the system. Uh, Sam Jackson has been playing. He didn't play much last year because of a knee injury, but he's been here for three years. I mean, really, you know, the only kind of quote unquote new guy who's playing a lot is Ed Collins over at left, uh, over at the uh, at tackle. But 
this is this is not this is, should not be happening a lot with this offensive line. There's, there's miscommunications. There's a ton of false starts. I mean, really, just just like penalties uh, that make you like shake your head and you're like, where is this coming from? Because you did not see this before uh, in in years past with this offensive line where they're making this many mistakes consistently. Uh, and and it's just funny how it seems like they're they, how they how they go sort of dictates how the offense goes, and uh, when they play poorly, UCF's probably going to lose. Well, and that brings up the other point I, th- I wonder. You know, McKenzie Milton, one of the abilities that I think maybe we underappreciated was if there was pressure around him, he was a guy that could elude it. He would, he would elude the pocket. He could get out of the pocket quick. He had that instinct to just take a, the right step, right, to get out. of, And that part of his experience, he, obviously, especially his sophomore and junior year, he would get out of the pocket – Whereas I kind of feel like Dylan kind of stays in the pocket, and there was one sack in particular where I could you he kind of felt the pressure, and he didn't know. I felt like he was still unsure what to do. Like the he was concerned more about the traffic, the, the pressure around him, and he really didn't know how to get out. And I think we've learned that Dylan Gabriel, while he might be mobile, and certainly maybe in a year or two we'll find out that maybe he's more comfortable being mobile. He's not as mobile as Milton, and maybe that's also contributed to some of these sacks because maybe uh, Dylan is either staying in the pocket too long or he's maybe holding on to the ball too much. Is that a part of, a part of this, too, with a freshman quarterback? It is a part of it, and he is not the scrambler that Milton is. And I know people will say, you know, who is the scrambler is Daryl Mack, and if we've got a quarterback – Behind a uh, behind a uh, a leaky offensive line, maybe we need to play the running quarterback more, the guy who's able to get out of the pocket more to avoid those sacks. Um, but I think that's sort of uh, you know that that that's uh, that's really that's a net that's a net that's a net zero. It's a sum zero because I feel like you still have your best chance to win with Dylan Gabriel. And I know people will say, how can that be when you look at the mistakes he's made? He's still the best. I think he's still the best quarterback on this team. I, I he's still the best thrower on this team of the football. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, but he does make, he does, I think, uh, his processing time is not where you would like it to be, even as a freshman. He does read the, he does read the field, field a little slowly at times, even though most of the plays are like half-field reads. He does hold on to the ball a little longer than you would like. But really, I think most of it is just on the offensive line getting beat. Like, they just get beat, yeah. and they give up rushers. Like, Tulsa came into this game with seven sacks on the season. And they got fixed against UCF. Yeah, that's um, just I, really, I think it's really about the old line just miscommunicating. And, and we and we talked about this before with them after the pick game and the Cincinnati game. Like, what's going on? What's happening? And you know, some guys talked about how you know they need to they need to strain more and fight more through the through the play. And that sort of sounds like you know some guys were were kind of giving up and not giving full effort. Um, so that could be an issue. I don't know, but. It, it, whatever it is, there are there are massive things wrong with this offensive line, which were um, totally out of the blue, considering again the expectations we had for it coming into the year. And that's so imperative. It's imperative in football in general. I mean, it, it, the offensive line is we never. It, it's not a. It's, you, there's no stats for it. But if your offensive line's not playing well, it's going to be hard. And you know, I remember yeah. when Scott Frost was here. That was a big thing. And and they always said, and I think even George O'Leary may have said it during his time. You know. You, the skill position, nobody questions. You could always get skill positions at places like UCF here. Right? That was never a question. The question is, can you get a quality line to play? And I think we, mm-hmm. we saw that in 2017 and 2018, what a good play, good getting good play out of the offensive line would open up things for the your playmakers. And as, when you don't have that, which is clearly, I think they don't have that this year, 
I think you've seen some of these faults. I mean, and you could – I don't care what kind of play calling you do. If your offensive line ain't playing well, you could call the greatest play call ever, and it's not going to work, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Um, so where do we go from here? Uh, what do you – What do you? there's a bye week. I, I don't believe – do you not agree with me? At this point in the year, you are who you are. I don't think yep. whatever issues you have, you can't. It's hard to fix at this point, in my opinion. I'm sure there's maybe a, a exceptions to the rule, but we're so late in the year. This is basically who they are. So correct. With that in mind, what do you expect to see? How do they finish this year on a positive note? I mean, look. So we got we got to talk to the guys today, uh, Wednesday. We get to talk to Coach Heifel, um, secondary coach Willie Martinez, a couple of the defensive players. And they're all saying the right things, you know. I mean, about you know they got to finish strong, and you know the energy on the practice field this week has been great, and the guys you know are bonded bonded together, and and they want to go out there and and win these last couple games. But the fact is that this team has major flaws that pop up consistently, and for some reason they pop they pop up on the road. Now it's amazing how the further we get out from the Temple game, how that looks like a complete outlier because that Temple game. Just does not fit, uh, uh, you know. When you mix in the Cincy game, the Pitt game, and the Tulsa game, so I, I mean that is the more that that is the weirder result than these last two games because these last two games are more in line with how this team has performed on the road. Right. Um, and so, with that being said, I am I, if I'm a if I'm a UCS fan, I am very nervous heading into this Tulane game. I mean, if you can't if you get pushed around by Tulsa uh, defensively. What are you going to do against Tulane, who has a pretty good defense and is a much better team overall? That that this is worrisome. So they can come out and say like they got they you know they want to win these last three games, you know the last two and then the bowl game, and they want to do this and win ten games. But uh, it's going to really it's going to be really interesting to see how they come out of this by if they're motivated to come out of this by and win these games, knowing that the conference championship is totally out of the picture, knowing that they're going to some you know also ran bowl game uh, and how they play. Um, because I fear, I fear it could look a lot like we what we just saw. UCF's one in four in games decided by eight points or less the last two years. That one win was at Memphis in the regular season, uh, thirty-one to thirty. In, com- in contrast, they were four and zero in games decided by eight points or less in twenty seventeen. Obviously, the year they went perfect. Is that just random, or is there something there, Murph? No, I think there's something there, and the guy. Well, I think there's something there only because the players have talked about it. The players have talked about how this program has not played in a lot of close games, uh, and and you know we when they do, you know they've been able to find them their way out of it. But you know now that now that they're playing in close games with with without McKenzie Milton, uh, you know they have uh, we talked about the lesser room for error, so you're not blowing as many people out anymore, and so they are stuck in these one position one possession games that. I feel like they they just do not have enough experience in, and I think that's showing up. And I I wouldn't say that if the players did bring it up, but the players have brought it up, so I do think that is an issue. Well, and that's tough to prepare for. I mean, you could practice all all scenarios you want until you've been through it. It's kind of hard yeah. to over, you know. And and let's be honest, a lot of times close games, you you got to kind of catch some breaks. I mean, they caught some breaks in that Memphis win at, uh, on the road, and. You could argue they've caught some bad breaks on some of these losses on the road. Um, right, it all it all it all evens out, right? Like, right. I mean, they 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 should have they should have lost at Memphis in twenty in twenty uh, 
uh, I forgot what it was already. Twenty eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they should have lost that game in Memphis. Uh, Memphis was up what thirty to thirty to fourteen, thirty to yeah. seventeen going yeah. in the half, uh, and and you know they they put Daryl Henderson into a shell in the second half of that game, and then they should have lost the conference championship game last year, right. where Henderson looked like Herschel Walker. And then apparently hurt his hand early in the second half, and then Memphis collapsed again. They should have lost both those games. I mean, they really should have. Um, so this is sort of this is sort of like yeah, this is this is sort of the regression to the mean in terms of um, luck. You just have some luck in which now they're having some bad luck, and you you have a couple of games here that you should have won. I mean, they they probably should they should have won the pick game because you know there's a penalty there on fourth and five on the on the ultimate right. drive of the game uh, that that gives. Pittsburgh new life that leads to a touchdown. Uh, I think they were outplayed by Cincinnati, but they they should have won at least the Pitt and the Tulsa game certainly. But again, it just they do stupid things and and um, and it comes back to bite them. And overall, they don't end up on the right side. And it sort of feels like yeah, this is sort of a football god saying you know well you 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 had those other seasons in which everything went in your way. Well, not everything's going their way this year, and they got a couple losses to show for it. Two things before we uh, move on. Uh, Nate Evans, obviously, the the situation there, going at it with the teammate on the field and things like that. What's your thoughts on that? Since if I don't ask you, people will be like, why did you ask Brian that? So here you are. There you go. I'm asking you the question about Nate Evans. Your thoughts? I know he spoke about it after the game. Uh, your, your, your whole thoughts on that? Yeah, it was weird, right? Like, we don't uh, – it's fine that we see teams arguing on the sidelines, you know, and get frustrated with each other when things are going wrong. But we have not seen this team actively yell and scream and come almost to blows with each other on the field. Uh, and that's almost what happened in Tulsa when with Kenny Sunier was on the ground after a play. He was lying on his back. Uh, Neville Clark comes over to look at him, and, and so does Nate Evans. And Nate sees Kenny on the ground and then just starts yelling in his face. It looks like he's yelling him to get up. Kenny gets up, kind of charges at Nate. They clash helmets. Uh, you got Hypo on the field trying to break it up. Um, there was some massive frustration on the field. Now, since then, everyone has downplayed it. Nate said, you know, that's just brothers, brothers fight. You know, there's frustration. It's a competitive game. Uh, you know, that's what happens sometimes. William Martinez said the same thing today about, you know, there's always frustration. Even in practice, guys will start yelling at each other. I mean, you, we don't see it because we're not at practice every day, but it happens a lot more than we think. Sure, that's fine. I get that. But, but still... We don't see that. We don't see this team going after each other on the field. And so that was rare, but everyone says it was just a one-time thing and it was just frustration and we're all past it. Well, and I kind of buy that from this standpoint, Brian. This team, I mean, a lot of these players haven't suffered a loss, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's not like, hey, we lost a game last year or two. This is what we do. Like, what do we do? We lost. They're not accustomed to this situation. And all of a sudden, you're in a battle, in a tight battle with a 2-7 and seven team. You're probably a little frustrated. You're probably internally thinking, why haven't we blown this team out? Um, yeah. Maybe there was, you know, maybe Nate thought that the players was not legit hurt. Maybe they thought they were flopping because there is more and more, and I've said this, and Jeff hates to hear this, but because almost every team goes no huddle and spreads, I think you're seeing more and more teams kind of, quote, uh, flop and fake injuries. Would you agree with that? I mean, we've seen that. Teams do that against UCF. Um, Maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah, extent. yeah, yeah. Oh, your team's doing it against yeah. I will say, so when we asked Nate after the game about it specifically, yeah. there's one line he brought up that I, that I put on Twitter, and you can see what he said on Twitter about the incident. But he said, you know, I just didn't want my brothers to give up on me. 
Now, when he uses the word give up on me, that seems like he's saying that Kenny at that point was giving up. Right. And I kind of followed up on that, and he stressed that no, he didn't feel like any player was giving up. But it just strikes me how three times, three times he said, I did not want my, my brother to go on me. So uh, there, there's, again, there's something there uh, that he didn't like, and, and it, it's alarming. And that is that is alarming uh, word from, from Nate, even though he sort of extinguished uh, the, the whole incident. Well, and that's what happens when you're 7-3 and three after winning 20-some games in a row. You know, it's kind of uh, – mm-hmm. and I think it's the same for fan bases. They've obviously – they're not accustomed to losing – when you have the two years that you did in 2017 and 2018 without a regular season loss, with all the noise that came with that about respect and you know go you know and things like that, when you lose a game, people aren't going to handle it well, Brian. I mean, it, it's not a perfect world, I, you know, to expect perfection of behavior-wise from you know fans who are you know it's a you know short for fanatical and even from young players or remember these kids these players are still what 18 to 22 year olds i think to expect right. them to handle yes. things well uh at that age when they're not accustomed to losing i think is uh, we're probably uh, a little naive to suggest that everything's going to be handled perfectly on all sides right right and uh, you know I, I look none of us expected this right we did our we did our right. pre-season picks before the year i don't think anybody on this site said that they were going to lose three games. I think we all had them going at least 10-2 and two, yeah. uh, before the bowl. So three games at this point with two games to go in the regular season, uh, it's certainly a shock to all of us. It really is. However, um, please, if you are a fan of this team, uh, and we are, we, we write for a fan site, let's be honest. We're writing for a fan site. Uh, know that, that this is how life goes for 97% of college football programs. I think in the last three years or four years, there are only four programs that have not experienced a three-loss season, and those are Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama. Please understand that this happens to every other team in college football, even UCF, even after they go undefeated. They are going to have seasons in which they go 9-3 and three or 8-4 and four or, God forbid, 7-5. and five. And it will happen, and it's going to suck but you can't then just say blow it all up. It's the apocalypse. <laughs> you gotta. You, I mean, you really have to sort of roll with it. There's going to be up years and there's down years. This team will have better years than this in the near future. I am. I guarantee that. But this is not a great year. You got to live with it though, because this is how every other program operates too. Unless you are the absolute cream of the crop, and that's just so rare. Life lessons from Brian Murphy, folks, here on the Black Panther Red here. <laughs> we'll leave it on that note. Uh, UCF on a bye this weekend. Uh, football coming up. We'll recap UCF men's basketball. They're 1-1. One one. Wins over Prairie View and Miami. What have we learned about this team, if any? Through two games. Later in the show, we'll talk about men's soccer. They're hosting the American Conference semi uh, tournament. They're the number five ranked team in the country. Do they have a shot at a top four national seed? We'll talk about that. And I'll tell Brian that Of course, we got the Black and Gold World Series in baseball. Something's going to happen there in the Black and Gold World Series that did not happen in the Major League Baseball World Series. Two things, actually. I'll tell Brian what that is. That's all coming up on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. 
With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. And welcome back to the Black and Go Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez here with you alongside Brian Murphy. Jeff Sharon off. He's moving. Uh, might be also excited because CM Punk is back in wrestling. Uh, so maybe that's why he's taking the show off. Or he's just very <laughs> upset uh, with volleyball losing to Cincinnati, which we'll get to later on the show. But uh, right now, let's talk about men's basketball here, Murph. Uh, two games in to the season for Johnny Dawkins and his new ball club, and literally new. Uh, they beat Prairie View A&M Saturday uh, by four. Uh, and, you know, obviously everybody was kind of, before we kind of flip out about that score being close, Prairie View A&M was an NCAA tournament team last year, brings back some players from that, so they're going to win the SWAC. And then losing to Miami 79-70 on Tuesday night, so UCF 1-1 one one through two games. Magically, Murph, you made it to both games. You actually flew yeah. from, took a, what, a red eye or a morning flight from Tulsa to get to Orlando in time to be at Prairie View A&M. So you were there for the win and then obviously was there uh, through the late night for the Miami game <laughs> on Tuesday mm-hmm. night. What, uh, what's been your impression of this team through two games? Uh, this team has a lot of work to do. Um, just and, they, and they'll admit it, but they have a lot of work to do in terms of like really basic stuff. Just running your sets offensively. Uh, learning how to play together, like they can. And, and, and Eric, you were there at UCF Basketball Media Day. They talked about how you know it's been great for them to play on in practice for for the, the months that they've gotten and running their running their their drills and their uh, scrimmages and going to Spain and playing some exhibitions over in Spain against local teams. But nothing nothing really compares to playing live action ball under the lights when it means something. And I think you're you're seeing a team. That I think we kind of all expected a team that that has some talented pieces, no doubt. But there are there are, they need a while to gel, and they have not done it yet. And it's only two games in, but it's going to be a while. And meanwhile, there's going to be a lot of peaks and valleys. Yeah, I think we've seen that in both games, and I think the Miami game. Looking back on that one, I think the big couple kick big factors there: Colin Smith getting into foul trouble, eventually fouled out. Uh, only play 22 minutes, I think that's a big factor. I think they're going to, you know, he's arguably your best player. If not, he's definitely your 1B player. Um, and if he's not on the court a, a ton, you're going to struggle a little bit. And then the turnovers, which I think speaks to this team still trying to figure out who they are and, and learning to play with each other. They turned the ball over 17 times. Miami only turned it over nine times. Miami has experienced guards. Uh, Miami turned those 17 turnovers yeah. to 21 points. I thought that was the diff- those two things were the big difference in the Miami game. Were you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, UCF, you know, was only down actually UCF fought back early in that game. We're down by we're down by 10 early. Fought back with some three-pointers. This team shoots a ton of threes by the way. They 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 made the three-pointers to take a short lead, a small lead uh, near the end of the first half, but um then right before halftime, Dazon Ingram commits a turnover. Uh, Cameron, Cameron McGusty for Miami, the, the Oklahoma transfer, uh, you know, lays it in at the buzzer, and UCF goes down by one right at the right at the half, and that sort of foreshadowed everything that was to come in the second half, where 
It was just more sloppy play, more turnovers that lead directly to Miami points. Um, and, and, you know, Eric, I think there's about uh, there's a stat that talk about non non uh, steal turnovers. So basically, turnovers you commit in which the opponent doesn't take the other ball away from you. It's basically just you doing dumb things like committing offensive fouls or throwing the ball away. UCF, I believe, has one of the worst rates. They actually rank 330. 315 out of 350, I think 353 teams in the nation right now in terms of non-steal turnover percentage. Meaning they just, they turn the ball over by just doing, like, unforced errors. Just throwing the ball away or, again, they're pushing off. Um, and so I think those are things that will be cleaned up as they go further along. I think this team does have decent ball handlers um, with, with Dazon Ingram and, and certainly uh, Cesar DeJesus doing more on the ball. Brandon Mahan, I believe, can work on the ball a little bit, and he's been a good player for this team. A guy we didn't even know would be eligible until right before the Prairie View game. That Brandon Mahan, um, you know, is, is eligible to Texas A&M transfer. Um, so they have pieces. You can see how there is talent on this team, um, but it's going to take a while for all of this to really come together. And I think everyone, Johnny Dawkins included, the players included, I think everyone understands that, and they're they're not afraid to admit it. I got to give you credit. You mentioned as we did our basketball preview show uh, a couple episodes ago, and we talked about new face, you know, guys that you think could make an impact. And when the guy you brought up was Darren Green Jr., and I've been mm-hmm. impressed with him through the two games. You can make the argument that Darren Green was a big part of why they beat Prairie View A and M when Prairie View A and M was pushing in the second half and UCF was struggling. Green brought that spark in the second half to get them the victory, and I thought he was good against Miami on Tuesday night. He had 13 points, tied for the team lead in scoring. He hit three threes, five of nine from the field in just 20 minutes. Uh, give you props. You called his name there. What was it about him that you liked, and what's been your thoughts on him here? Could we see an expanded role here uh, for Darren Green moving forward? I think you definitely could. I think that they, they – I don't, I, know, I don't know if Johnny wants to put too much on his plate this early. I, I think Johnny likes where they've got him now as a reserve sharpshooter. I don't think you're going to see him be moved in the starting lineup this quickly, two games in. Um, but this is what he does, right? Darren Green uh, might possibly be the best shooter on this team. Um, and, and I think this team does have good shooters. Again, with Frankfurt, uh, Matt Milan has not shot well early, but I have no, I, I'm really not worried about him. I think he'll come around and be fine. But it might be the freshman, Darren Green, who is the best shooter, and that's probably why, among all of the freshmen on this team, with, with Dre Fuller and Tony Johnson, uh, that he's getting the most run because he can impact this game offensively you know, in, in, in a split second. And this team sort of needs that shot in the arm. He has delivered in both the games. Um, and, and I just think he, you know, he's looked really good. He is not, he's not looked like a guy who is overwhelmed by, by playing in D1 ball by playing against the ACC team, um, the future is, I thought the future was bright for him before he even played. And just to see how well he's played in his early going, um, he's going to be, he could be a legitimate star for this program pretty soon. I don't think this, obviously this team does not have the true scores like an Aubrey Dawkins or a BJ that can get their own bucket, right? Like can get their own shot. But do they have more shooters on this roster than they did last year? Probably. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting to see Cesar DeJesus now trusting his three-point shot more. That's been pretty big because, you know, he's had a problem with that the last couple of years. But he's been more of a weapon on the outside. I mentioned, obviously, Darren Green, Matt Milan, and I think is, is uh, only like two for 15 so far. Again, I am not worried about Matt. I think he'll be fine. Frank Burks is a good shooter. 
Uh, Dazon Ingram can shoot. Uh, really, this team wants to shoot threes. There was a point in the Prairie View game in the second half where in 10 consecutive shot possessions, they were all three-pointers. They took 10 consecutive threes. <laughs> um, you know, this includes like Colin Smith and guys like that who want to step out and take threes anyway. So uh, I-, I think this team probably has more shooters. I don't know if any of them are as good overall as Aubrey, uh, but certainly they have more weapons on the perimeter, and they want to spread you out and probably you know do more of the you know what basketball currently is, which is it's more up tempo. Which by the way, this this team is more of tempo. It's not it's it's not the it's not Duke, but it's more of tempo. <laughs> and then they want to spread you, they want to spread you out and and try to you know drain shots from the outside. If they if they hit you know hopefully hit ten a game. Then that's going to really help. You mentioned uh, Brandon Mahan. Big news there. We did not know if he would even play for this team this year. Uh, tell us the story, the background there, because we, at least the public, we found out. I think it was right before tip-off. Hey, he's good to go. He's going to play, and he did. He played well against Prairie View A and M off the bench. Uh, transfer. Just talk about that story. Yeah. So Brandon Mahan is a, a guy who transferred in from Texas A and M. I believe. Uh, during the summer, I believe it was June. Um, and so no one was really expecting him to be eligible this year. And I'll be frank, I am not exactly sure why the NCAA has uh, you know, given him this waiver to play immediately. It just seems, I mean, you look at how the NCAA decides these things, and sometimes it can feel kind of random. But the fact is that he was uh, made ineligible very shortly before the season began. It wasn't the same day. Now, the news broke. Uh, the news was broken by by the program itself that Mayhem was eligible against Prairie View. He was not, you know, he was not officially eligible that day. But it wasn't it wasn't more than a week before the season started that they actually knew he would be in the lineup uh, and a part of the rotations. And that's great. He is he, he gave them a big spark off the bench in the first half against Prairie View. He he looks like a guy who can really get to the get to the rack and score. Um, but I, I also his inclusion does make it a little more difficult for Johnny Dawkins because, again, he did not know if they would have Brandon at all this season up until about 10 days ago, I think. So now you've got to work him in there. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't really been a part of the game plan, and that's just another guy that you sort of have to figure out where he fits in all of this while you're sort of figuring out where anybody fits in all of this. I mean, there's just there's so much that's nebulous about this team uh, and now you, you put another guy in there, uh, it's, it's not a bad problem to have because, again, he can score. Um, but, it's, again, it's going to take a long time for this to sort itself out. And I'll be honest, I, it may not sort itself out until the very, very end of the season, in which case this team season is already middling. Well, and you mentioned earlier the stat about the unforced turnovers. Isn't that part of it, too? Because you don't these guys don't – you don't know the guy's tendency, right? Like a BJ and Aubrey play together – for you know, with practice and everything, so they kind of knew, oh, you're going to be on this spot, or this guy's going to be on this spot. If you're not sure who's going to be where, or you're not 100 percent sure what to do, that's where sometimes unforced turnovers occur. Correct? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Aubrey only played one year for UCF on the court, but he was here for three years. Yeah. Uh, right. And you know, BJ was here for forever. Uh, Taco, same thing. I mean, these guys, you know, were here for a long time. Chad Brown, and so now. You, you've got a lot of new guys. We were talking about it last night during the game. You know, there was a critical, there was a critical juncture in the game. And uh, I think it was the second half. It was a close game. And you look on the floor, and you saw Cesar DeJesus, 
you saw Ibrahim Pamuke Dumbia, who you know looks like a very athletic big, but really hasn't shown a whole lot as far as results yet, but looks like a very athletic big. And those are the two guys on the floor that were here last year, and Caesar was was reserve, and Dumbia was sitting out. I believe as a transfer. So in a key moment, this team is basically all brand new, and it just kind of again, it, we all knew it coming in, but to see it play out on the floor, you just see how there's just this team is really starting from the ground up, and not in terms of experience. We've got experienced guys because the transfers they brought in with Milan and Ingram, but just in terms of playing together in this setting with these guys in real time, in real action, uh, there, there's not a whole lot of continuity here, and you're seeing that with turnovers. You've seen that with some of the shot selection. And, uh, again, I just think it's something that this team and this program and the fan base is going to have to deal with. And I think they understand this is going to be a pretty long process. They go up now to normal Illinois to take on Illinois State. Of course, they played last year at UCF. UCF won that game. But everybody, if you're a night diehard night hoops fan, you remember the classic NIT matchup at Illinois State where UCF won B.J. Taylor with a game-winning free throw in the final second uh, for UCF to advance in the NIT tournament. That was the year UCF went on to the Final Four. They got to beat Illinois in the quarterfinals at home, but they beat Illinois State, who was a team that a lot of people that year thought was an NCAA tournament-worthy team. Great game. Well, they go back to that place to play Illinois State 2 o'clock on Sunday uh, and then come back home to face a very good College of Charleston team uh, Saturday, the November 23rd at 2 o'clock before, obviously, that same day that football is at Tulane before they go out west to Anaheim, Brian, in California. And that's the thing. I, the only reason I bring that up is, while this team is learning who they are and they try to figure out what pieces fit in the puzzle, uh, they're not playing cupcakes here. No, certainly. Uh, you, you talked about Illinois State and Charleston. They, you know, when they go out to to uh, California, they could possibly play Arizona in their second. They game. They got Penn to open uh, with, is, by the way. Penn, who beat Alabama so, to start yeah. the year, right? And really, uh, a big. Uh, they're a big team out of the Ivy. They really are. They probably should make the tournament. Um, so yeah, I get it. The the, the slate of teams in the non conference uh, doesn't really have much name recognition outside of Miami and Oklahoma. But there are pretty good mid-major teams uh, that, 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 that this program is going to be facing, and, and you want that against uh, you know against a, a team that's still working the kinks out. But I believe, I really do hope that uh, I believe in the first round, Arizona and, and Pepperdine are facing each other. If Arizona wins that game and UCF wins their opener against uh, against Penn, they would face each other in the second round, which would be on Friday, uh, Black Friday, no less. Yep. Uh, and I would like to see that. I would just like to see them go up against another high major team uh, way out west there and see how they deal with that. Because, you know, in the end, you do want to see how your guys sort of match up with the, the, the power conference, you know, or high major programs, as it were, um, like you did last night against Miami. Not a good, not, they're not a very good ACC team, but they're, they're, probably on the, on the, uh, they're probably on the borderline of a tournament quality team, and you, and you want to see how that works. No question about that. So we'll see how they uh, continue to develop. And they're starting on the road this Sunday at Illinois State. Now, Brian's not going to stay with us for the rest of the show because he is prepping for what he has circled. for. A, he's really circled this since it was announced, I don't know, a couple months ago. And that's the Black and Gold World Series, which is the cap off to the baseball fall ball season for UCF, uh, who is coming off a dominant 13-4 win at Stetson on 
Saturday night, uh, which you were not at, uh, you know. No. You missed a 14-inning game. Why are they playing 14 innings? Nobody knows, as we understand it. But nonetheless, uh, they're going to play three games, the Black and Gold World Series, at uh, the John. Capped off on Saturday at 3 Eastern, where you and I will actually be at, uh, celebrating Mm -hmm. this fall classic, uh, if you will. (laughs) What is uh, what is, I, I guess the question in softball, by the way, wraps up their fall ball as well. Now, let me I will speak on Brian's behalf on this because I've gotten questions about this because softball played Florida and Florida State and they lost. And it's like, what's going on? And I'm like, it's fall ball, people. Doesn't matter. And I think you can speak mm-hmm. to this. Fall ball is a situation where baseball, and I think it's the same in baseball, and it is in softball where you play a bunch of players. And you throw them out there in any in different scenario, in situations, and you're trying different things out. And while you are playing an opponent, you're also trying to figure out what each player in your roster can and cannot do and needs to work on, right? I mean, is that a fair assessment why you cannot take too much into results in fall ball, right? No. Again, if you ever want to know about results in fall ball, just have Allen Iverson playing in the back of your head because we are literally talking about practice. We're talking about practice, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Now, with that in mind, uh, yes. what are you looking forward to seeing or that you've seen? You've been to one game already uh, when they played Stetson at home, and you're going to see them here at the Black and Gold Series. It, 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 do you look for specific players to see how they look? Uh, or do you look for specific positions and who's playing where? What, what's kind of the, some of the things you're going to, you know, just take a peek and not, not to make a big deal out of it, but just kind of, you know, take a peek at some things that maybe could you, you'll put in the back of your mind maybe come the 2020 season gets going in February. Right. I think, you know, because the rules of the, of the spring game are probably are not regulation rules. Like if we saw, or excuse me, of the spring game, oh, my God, <laughs> of, the black and gold, of the Black and Gold World Series, they're not usually regulation rules. We saw in their first game here, the John against Stetson, you had guys coming out of the game who could reenter. Um, you had guys who were fielding at times but were never batting. Uh, we played 12 innings for no reason because they wanted to get more innings in. So, I know, as far as, like, who's playing where, I don't really care because that, that might just be for this fall and then they'll move on. What I would like to see and what we have sort of seen, at least in the box score uh, so far, is guys, pitchers who were injured last year uh, coming back and how are they progressing. And so, unfortunately, comma, Eric, I was not able to make it, like I said, uh, to, uh, to the land on Saturday night because, yes, I was in Tulsa Friday night. I got out of the stadium at 1 a.m. Saturday. I went back to my hotel for about an hour. I packed up. I got on a plane flight at 6 a.m. to go back to Orlando. Took an Uber back to my house so I could change out of clothes, put on new clothes, and then drive out to at the arena to watch basketball play Prairie View. And then after that game was over and I wrote my story for it, I didn't feel like driving an hour north. Oh, come on, Murph. To watch, to come watch, on. To watch baseball. I didn't. I, I'm 90 minutes of sleep. I did not feel like driving that far north to watch fake baseball. However... However, in those four hours and 23 minutes, I did miss, and by the way, UCF won 13-4, which you wouldn't know if you went to their website, because I don't think they have the score posted, because, again, uh, the, the points don't matter uh, in football. They just don't. Don't worry about it. But, however, uh, you want to know how these injured pitchers are, are, are coming along. And I asked Coach Lovebody about this uh, after the first testing game uh, a couple weeks ago, and you know, talked about how everybody's, uh, everybody's sort of on track for opening day, and you sort of saw this, in the second game, Joe Sheridan got the start, pitched two innings. Uh, David Litchfield, coming back from Tommy John surgery two years ago, pitched a little bit last year, 
had some other injury complications, but he pitched an inning. Uh, Nolan Lepkoski pitched three innings, struck out four, gave one run. Trevor Holloway, who was the big-time starter for them last year, ended the year on the shelf due to bicep tendonitis. He comes in, pitches two innings. It's just good to see these guys on the mound. I mean, that, that, that's the main point. I really don't care how they, how, what the box score looks like, what, what, they, what they did. Statistically, you want to see them throwing freely, uh, with good velocity, good movement. Uh, and I think that at least you know, we can trust what Lovelady said about these guys coming along uh, and being ready. Because guys like Sheridan, Lukowski, Holloway, they were not available uh, at the end of last season. They were all injured. So uh, that, that's, a big, that's a big sign and something I'll continue to watch for uh, this weekend. I'll be out there probably Thursday, like you said. Uh, or, well, I'll be, I'll be out there Saturday for the finale, but I'll probably be out there Thursday, uh, tomorrow afternoon, just because, why not? I mean, I, I'll, be, I'll be on campus anyway. I'll be on campus anyway doing football interviews uh, Thursday morning. So the game's at 3 on Thursday afternoon. I might as well just stick around for a few more hours and catch some baseball. Why not? That's right. So for many of you that are listening to this episode, that's why Brian, Brian right now is at baseball stadium right now. Um, and yeah. that's why he's not yeah. sticking around for the rest of the show. But that is a kind of real encouraging sign about the pitching, because that's probably going to be – has to be one of the strengths for this team in 2020, doesn't it? I mean, we're going to have so many questions about this offense with so many new faces to have stability pitching-wise and have quality, hopefully, arms, I think is a big factor for this Greg Lovelady team in 2020, which is not that different than softball, who also has a lot of new faces, and I think will have a lot of new starters position-wise. And I think their experience – you've got a senior and Aaliyah White – and then I think they got a transfer pitcher from Boise State's pretty good, and they got Brianna Vasquez, who was a great had a great rookie year last year, freshman year. So they, I think this might actually be a deep softball pitching staff, but they're gonna have a lot of new faces probably offensively, and they have to improve offensively. I kind of feel baseball's in a similar boat where there's gonna be a lot of new faces that you hope can improve this offense, but in the meantime, you need that stability, and that's got to come from the pitching, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, every Lovelady team in the three seasons that he's been here has really been built on pitching and more so built on built on bullpen. Uh, and so now, if you get if you get somebody like Nolan Lukowski back, who was out all last year with TJ surgery, and Jalen Whitehead made has made strides uh, this year as well. You couple him, you couple those guys with the guys who are coming back in the bullpen. Uh, that's really critical for this team to be successful. Not just you know we can talk about the starters and and seeing what Joe Sheridan's role is. You would like to see him come back um, certainly, and, and obviously Trevor Holloway will factor big time in the rotation. But for, for this team to be successful, or really for Lovelady to think this team can be successful, he has always built a overpowering bullpen with like five, like four or five dependable arms. And you, you, you hope that they have that for this season. And so far, it looks like the guys, again, the guys who were banged up, the guys who were hurt at the end of last year are coming along well. And we still have three months away until the season starts. So at this point, all signs point to you know these guys being all systems go come February, which is good news for this team, obviously. Thursday's game, if you're listening on the third before, three o'clock, Friday, six o'clock, and then Saturday, three o'clock at John Juliano Park. Check out a little baseball before February. Uh, should be fun. Murph, you'll get to see I think you're gonna see two things at the Black and Go World Series. And if anybody goes out there, I'll be there Saturday. You're gonna see two things. Did, uh, that uh, two things that will happen that did not uh, happen at the World Major League Baseball World Series where the Washington Nationals beat the Houston Astros. Number one, a home team's going to win. That's number yeah, one. Yeah, I knew that joke was coming. Thank I you. knew that was coming. And number two, we don't have to worry about any of the teams stealing signs with video. Thank you. There you go. 
<laughs> just take a shot at the Astros. For big Badoosh. Badoosh. Murph, tell the audience uh, where they can find your work and what you got coming up. Oh, I'm on Twitter. I mean, really, when am I not on Twitter? It's at spokes underscore Murphy. If you listen to this podcast, you know by now. You probably follow me. Uh, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> am I selling this well? Uh, I will. Uh, I'll be. I'll be writing about. Uh, I will be writing about the Black and Gold World Series uh, after it ends over the weekend. Sort of uh, giving you a recap of uh, not the games themselves, but really what have we learned? Uh, you know, who who maybe stepped forward uh, as you know, a guy who impressed in this fall area who can carry that over in the spring. You know, basically, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, where are we at with this with this team right now in November? I'll be doing that. And then, because it's the bye week, Eric, I don't know, man. I might just be sitting back and watching movies. I might, I might disregard football for a full weekend, which I'm kind of looking forward to. Yeah, uh, yeah. You mean you're not going to be like Jeff following that South Florida-Cincinnati game, kind of you know, figuring out the mathematics if Cincinnati were to lose out and UCF win out and win the division? No, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how much I do not care about college football this weekend. <laughs> I really don't. Oh my God! So maybe you'll all right. But you'll be tweeting about the Black and Gold World Series, though. That's, that's I will be doing that. I care wow. about I care about exhibition baseball. There you go. No doubt. There you go. Well, enjoy that, sir. I'll see you there on Saturday. Uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, like I said, I'll see you Saturday from the the Fall Classic Game Three. The two magical words come fall ball. <laughs> back with Game more. Two. Back with more. The Black and Gold Banner. The number five ranked team, UCF Knights Men's Soccer, hosting. The American Conference Championship. Where do they stand for the NCAA tournament projections? Plus, women's soccer season comes to an end. What does that all mean? That's all coming up as we wrap up this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret. SMU's, obviously, we, we, we've met them is it three times in a row in, in the final. Um, so they're, they're a top team, and they, they, they work so hard. They, they've, they've got such a strong mentality, and I think um, it's going to be a great game. It's obviously going to be a great game, and I think our guys look forward to it. I think their guys look forward to it. I think it's a rivalry now. I think officially if you play a team three times in a final, that's got to be a rivalry. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be a great game, and I think we're all looking forward to it. And welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. That was Scott Calabrese on Wednesday night, courtesy of the American Digital Network, following UCF's dominant performance, 5-0 victory over Temple led by Cal Jennings, who was named Offensive Player of the Year in the American, scoring a hat-trick. And it sets up the matchup, as Calabrese talked about, the matchup we've all been waiting for on Saturday night, the American Conference Championship match, number five-ranked UCF in the United Soccer Coach poll and number uh, top five-ranked team in the as well as in the top drawer soccer poll, taking on SMU, ranked in the top ten as well. Huge implications. How big the implications are, that's some of the questions we're going to try to address right now, ladies and gentlemen, with a returning guest. Miss our good friend, Travis Clark from Top Drawer Soccer joins us. And uh, Travis, welcome back to the show. Uh, this is the best time of year now in soccer. It is. It's also a very busy time. Although in some ways it's not because there are less games in both the men's and women's D1 seasons as what we're trying to cover. But uh, you know, it's definitely the most exciting because you see the intensity of, you know, whether it's conference tournaments or NCAA, while intensity doesn't always equal pretty soccer, uh, there's something about adding that competitive edge to the game that makes, and then maybe a little bit about the crisp weather, at least up here um, in the <laughs> D.C. area. Like you guys probably don't have that same sort of like fall vibe down in Florida, but 
you know, regardless, it's a, it's an exciting time of the year. And uh, it's exciting to think about the American Conference being decided uh, between its two best teams this Saturday night. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I won't mention that we had a big cold front that dropped it down to the high 60s. But we'll, we'll get to that. Oh. Well, I'll, I'll just move on from there. Uh, let, let's match, talk about the actual match. All right, so UCF-SMU, no surprise, this is the American Conference Championship match. What's your initial thoughts on this matchup? SMU had to go through overtime, double overtime, to beat South Florida. There was a controversial, looked like maybe a hand goal that wanted for SMU. It's not reviewable. Uh, that knocked the, the Bulls out, so SMU gets away that way. Whereas I mentioned UCF blew out Temple five to nil. What's your impressions and your thoughts on this mega matchup here of these two top ten program Matt teams here? Well, we can only hope that it's a, a repeat performance of the meeting back in on October sixth when they tied three uh, three. At that time, it was in Dallas, though, and you know UCF has home cooking this time and. Last time I was on the podcast, I talked about the team's defense being a little bit better, and you got you got to see that at least for for one night against Temple. Obviously, in the final game of the AAC season, you get overtime against a less than stellar Cincinnati team. So I, I think that's why this matchup excites me the most. Is you have two teams that have plenty of attacking quality, and it's not that they're ropey at the back, but the way they kind of play and open things up, there are goals that are going to be in this one. And as, as much as it can be an exciting time of year in college soccer, it can also be a dour, less uh, intent, less attack minded approach taken by a lot of teams. So I think the, the, that's why this matchup for me has so much compelling. You have the two senior forwards who are probable, you know, whatever the MLS draft ends up looking like, you think that, Garrett McLaughlin, Garrett, McLaughlin, yeah, Garrett McLaughlin and Cal Jennings will both be first-round picks. And, you know, they're, they're two, like, talismanic goal scorers that earned, you know, have earned a bevy of awards during their college soccer careers. And I think that adds a little bit more of a one-on-one luster to the, the program versus program matchup. And um, then you sprinkle in all the goals that that could be scored. And uh, there's a, if there's one match that a, you know, soccer fan there's one college men's college conference final to watch this weekend it's got to be this one now granted i'm going to go ahead and say all this and it'll be a one one zero game or something which i don't think would happen but knowing my luck and prognostication ability uh, could very well come to pass so uh, it's definitely one that i'm going to try to make a very very strong effort i watched uh, you know bits and pieces of both games last night um less Less compelling of a matchup than the second game between Temple and UCF, but you know, we saw what Cal Jennings does best. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what these teams put together after that first matchup where they combined for six goals. Yeah, and what an up and down. These are two of the top uh, offensive teams. They like to shoot. I mean, it should not – it should be as entertaining as it gets. And you mentioned the two-star players, Garrett McLaughlin and Cal Jennings, and and, I, and, and it was an interesting comment you just made. I want you to expand a little bit on this because I know you cover this as well on Top Soccer Drawer. You, uh, you mentioned you think they both could be first-round draft picks in the MLS. That's been something that locally – uh, it's been people have been wondering about Cal Jennings' th- chances uh, of making it to the MLS in the next level, and we just weren't sure. Uh, but you're pretty mm-hmm. high on him. Just talk about how that process works, because some people have been wondering about that for Cal's purposes on his next step there. And and I think I'm with you on McLaughlin. I've been super impressed every time I've seen him. So that's interesting. Expand on that. Well, yeah, I think it should be worth pointing out that given the way soccer varies from other sports, that 
being a first round pick in MLS means far, far less than it does in other, you know, your other major collegiate sports, specifically for the NBA and NFL drafts. Like that's not, you know, you're not even guaranteed a spot on the roster. In some cases you're handed a, an extended tryout and, there, there was a little bit of a trend buck to this past season where a couple of senior guys, you know, the, the MLS rookie of the year was Andre Shinyashiki, who uh, you guys down in Orlando might know from his days at Montford Academy, but he played four years at Denver University before getting drafted by the Rapids in the first round, and he actually went on to make an impact. Now, the case of attacking players, getting chances, enough chances in enough minutes to make an impact in their rookie years and beyond is part of the issue because MLS teams are building from a variety of different pathways, whether it's their academy or looking abroad to bring in players. And so, you know, if you see someone like Cal picked in the first round, he's got a long ways to go to actually making appearances and contributions to his team. But I know that scouts that I speak to are, are high on him and he's done this in back-to-back years, which will help him. And then, you know, for Garrett, I know that this is a UCF po- uh, podcast, but you know he's worth mentioning as well as somebody who had some serious injury issues last year that kind of sapped his numbers. But he's back. He's 15 goals, five assists, and then uh, you know scoring goals is obviously very different too in MLS versus the college game. But you know for these guys, if they get picked up by teams that have an USL size or maybe they go on loan, that could be an avenue to developing and eventually becoming. Uh, you know, a regular in MLS or uh, something to that effect. I'm glad you mentioned both of them. Trust me, here in where, where the market, where Orlando City had another long, long year, we're, we're just grateful to see talented soccer players that could put the ball in, in the net on a consistent <laughs> basis. That We don't know how that feels in the MLS over here in this market. So trust me, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're pretty pleased. All right, let's get into now this matchup. We've talked about the keys to this matchup, but What's at stake for both of these teams? And when I say that, obviously the conference championship, but I'm talking big picture here. Selection Monday is just uh, around the corner here this week after this weekend. What is at stake in this match for both UCF and SMU from that standpoint? Yeah, it's it's hard to know 100%. Obviously, both are going to be in the tournament. They're both sitting in the top 10 in RPI. And it's really hard to know the, the each scenario what – the implication will be if we're talking specifically seeding, I think both will be in the top eight of the college bracket, and that would give them, you know, a couple of games here or there. Um, I want to say that the winner would probably get a top four seed, and that, you know, with that comes basically they would host between, you know, from the second round on through to the College Cup, which is obviously at a neutral location in Cary, North Carolina this year, but the, you know, it's hard to know that 100% that if like, let's say SMU wins, they'll get the top four and USCF won't. I don't think both would get that, but I think both are going to be in like the four to eight range, let's say. And, you know, particularly with um, Clemson and Virginia, the outcome of that final, the ACC final, that could have implications as well, since both of those are top five RPI. You know, if Clemson, let's say, loses to Virginia, does then SMU win and move ahead of UCF, and they both get top four? Like, you know, there's a lot of scenarios and permutations that are hard to make this kind of like it's hard to make it ironclad and speaking to the the result directly leading to X, Y, or Z. But 
I do think you win the game. If you're UCF, you win the game, you're SMU. The chances of a top four seed are high. So in the, in the, I know that I'm throwing a bunch of words at it, but it's like, let's just say the winner will get a top four seed and call it like that. Even if it's not necessarily like 100% what it would happen. Because you just can never really know. If that all makes sense, I hope it does. Well, yeah, not only does it make sense, but like what you said, I think when the last time you were on here, you mentioned you warned everybody, hey, you know, the committee might be very friendly towards the ACC. Um, Right. And we saw that when they had their initial uh, rankings out on November 1st, kind of a preliminary, you know, kind of a preview. And they had three ACC teams in the top five in the rankings there. They had Virginia, they had Clemson, and they had Wake Forest. Uh, is that really the biggest threat to UCF and, for that matter, SMU, is that the likely is that the committee might decide, hey, we're just going to go with three ACC teams in the top four national seeds, especially if Clemson were to beat Virginia and win the ACC tournament? Yeah, I do think that Wake Forest, because they lost to Virginia and you can't have three teams in a title in a tournament final, you would hope that the committee would at least get one of the American programs, the top four seed. But again, you just, you're never going to know. And I I could, you know, there's definitely a plausible scenario where, you know, let's say UCF wins uh, hypothetical. There could definitely end up there at a five through eight seed. You know, that's not out of the realm of possibilities. Georgetown is in the big East conference tournament final. They were the regular season champions. So you think, they're going to be in that mix for a top four seed if, assuming they win on Sunday against Providence. I don't necessarily think the Big Ten that Indiana gets into that top four mix, if even if they win the Big Ten tournament. And then, obviously, you know, the Stanford U- University of Washington Pac-12 leaders, they're kind of in the one-two battle going into the final weekend. I'm not sure if they're in going to be in the mix as well. So it's probably going to be, you're looking at the ACC programs and how they're viewed. And then Georgetown, you know, let's say Georgetown loses and the SMU, who, you know, that would probably guarantee an SMU or a UCF winner gets it. But I, it's again, like I hate, I don't want to speak in guarantees and get everyone's hopes up just because well, especially yeah, I've seen it before. Well, especially with the committee, you just <laughs> uh, as we'll get into with the women's soccer because I'll ask you about that. What your thoughts were, what they did there with the American Conference teams? It's sometimes it's very interesting what they did there. I want to ask you about Wake Forest because they lost in the semis you met to Virginia. They did not win the regular season or the ACC tournament. However. I guess their argument they're going to make is they beat Clemson when they played in the regular season, and they did beat UCF in the opening match of the year. Does that, do you think, play a role at all with the committee in this as far as the head-to-head, or is that because is that just an isolated database and they get, they, there's a bigger picture there? You know, I'm, I'm not even 100% sure. The, the sort of mechanisms have never really made sense to me with the RPI. I do think that it could come down to – a head-to-head matchup like that, but I think if UCF wins, yeah, it'd be very curious to see. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly very curious to see what all the scenarios could be behind the scenes because it's again, it's not 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 that it's mysterious, but it just confounds logic sometimes. So you know, maybe it confounds logic and UCF, you know, wins the the tournament. They but they for some reason are below Wake Forest in the rankings just because of the 
the way the numbers are crunched or whatever. So yeah, I, I don't think it should be taken personally though, if they end up doing it, maybe be a motivating factor for the team. If they see that they're slightly below where they think they should be. We're nitpicking. I think both teams are, and, and, and I think all the coaches would tell you, Hey, obviously we'd prefer to be a top four seed, but at the end of the day, you got to play well, regardless. Yeah. You got to uh, win your games and whether yeah. you're home or away. And at some point, if you're a five, six seed, maybe you end up posting all your games anyway. And Right. Upsets tend to happen. And if you want to win a national championship in one of these two programs, I'm sure that's the goal at this point for both these programs, even though they, you know, they may not be in like the inner circle of contending programs, at least by some people's view. Uh, you know, they got to go out and win the games and get the job done. It's not going to matter what your seat is. Agreed. Agreed. And you could be worse. You could be a situation like South Florida, who's on the bubble, not even knowing if they're going to make the field. They lose an over double overtime to SMU in the semifinals. Temple, I know you talked about possibly being in the bubble, got blown out by UCF. How many teams do you think the American will get uh, into the field? At this point, you'd have to think that three is going to be their max. Uh, it's like you said, South Florida's on the bubble. Temple probably had to win that game or at least lose it a lot closer, or maybe draw and lose on PKs. But it's hard to see. You know, they have, they picked up a nice win against Louisville, but it's going to be pretty hard for them from where they're sitting to get into it. You know, they played a tough schedule, and credit should be given to them in that capacity, but it, it's really hard to project. I still think they're not, like, totally done by that result, but I don't think it's going to do them a lot of help because, if that's the last day data point of the season that the committee is working with for Temple, like, oh, you played against this, you know, top five RBI team and you lost 5-0, but we're going to go and give this last bid to the maybe the team that's one or two below or one or two ahead of you in the RPI that picked up, a, you know, maybe a conference final loss, conference tournament final loss or something to, the, to that effect. You know, you look at, or, you know, maybe even get, the ACC bias will come back. It's like, well, do we bring in Temple or do we give like a Pitt, a Syracuse or an NC State uh, one of these spots instead because they're in a more difficult conference and that sort of bias comes into play. So, you know, you've seen teams, I think there was one year where Charlotte was left out of the tournament a couple years ago and they were in the, like the teens in the RPI too and I kind of defied logic a little bit. So uh, I'm curious to see how that shakes out for Temple. I think, you know, three is probably the max if South Florida, I would say, gets in, especially like you know, they had the 2-1 overtime loss. They played really well in their last that data point, for lack of a better term. I think that helped boost their case way more than what we saw the um, what we saw from the, the Owls in their final game, or what could be their final game of 2019. Yeah, and finished as the third-place team, when suppose Oars Temple was in the middle of the pack in the league. Certainly also could... Uh, Swayed that to the Bulls' favor. We'll find out on Monday. So that's the story on the men's side. But I want to give you a couple quick questions before I let you go on about the women's tournament. That was announced on Monday. Uh, two teams from the American. I want to ask you about this because there was a lot of anger on social media. Michael Kelly, the athletic director of South Florida, upset because South Florida is going on the road in the opening round to play Florida instead of hosting. I'm not as shocked by that. South Florida was a bubble team going in. I was more shocked, Travis, with Memphis, a team that has been ranked most of the year, top 25 in all the major polls. You guys have had them ranked. They dom they won the regular season title, and they don't. Not, they are going on the road as a reward 
to play at Washington State. What did you make of that? Uh, those decisions by the committee. Well, I, I think that sort of best sums up the why, why I was throwing all those caveats and uncertainties when talking about the fate of UCS, UCF or SMU, right? Mm-hmm. You have Memphis. Yeah, yeah. Granted, the RPI is not enormous, but to send them all the way, all the way to Pullman, Washington, for their first round matchup for a team they're ranked ahead of in the RPI is kind of. I mean, there's literally no nothing that you could say that would explain that and sum it up. So, I honestly don't have anything, any idea how to explain it or break it down, but. Because you know, it makes no reminding. sense, right? <laughs> That's yeah, why it's exactly. hard to <laughs> Like, you saw the season that Memphis had. You saw the season. I, I think South Florida has a little bit less of a bone to pick. They're playing They're playing their in-state rivals, but sure, Florida has not had a great season. That's a much better matchup, for me at least, than a... That's a much better matchup than what Memphis was dealt as the conference tournament champion to boot. So that just makes that confounds all logic. And, you know, hopefully Memphis can find a way to get that result. But that is a tough, tough ask. And I think something similar happened in the sort of the opposite way recently, where Washington State had a pretty good year that had to fly all the way to UCF and ended up actually knocking them out. Maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, but, no, no. We Trust um, me, it's a bad memory you're bringing up, Travis. That was 2017. UCF, uh, Coach Sahadag had a dominant team. Steamrolled yeah. through the American. It was a national seed, and the reward was getting a Washington State team as a bubble team uh, right there in the opening round. And you, it was an own goal. I was there at that match. Early in the match, UCF dominated the match, but they, it was an own goal. And that's how Washington State advanced. And that year, they ended up going all the way to, I believe, the Sweet 16, I want to say, or even Elite 8 uh, that yeah. year for Washington State. So, uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes, that uh, trust me. We I didn't mean to bring up bad well. memories, yeah. but uh... – <laughs> There's a long, long track record of confounding things happening to that effect when talking non-revenue sport. I mean, you have you have people up in arms about obviously the the bigger sports as well, the the football, the basketball, baseball. I'm sure, but um, the the thing that's it's just notable that it's going to happen no matter what, and it's good to have people talking and I guess to have something good to talk about. I'm sure that the players and the coaching staff are less and less enthusiastic about the prospect, specifically of traveling for all the way to Pullman, Washington, and probably dealing with some snow and very, very cold weather coming their way. Yeah, it's insane. Oh, yeah, it's just quite crazy. Uh, let's hope on this Monday that the Men's Selection Committee does a little better job on that and we don't have that crazy of kind of selections, but you never know. And one thing we know for sure is that you guys will be breaking it down on topdrawersoccer.com. Busy time, as you mentioned, signing days in, 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 in NCAA soccer. You guys break that down. Just tell us a little bit right now. This is one of the busiest times of the year in soccer on a, for a lot of reasons. Just tell us about the, where they can find your work and what's uh, what's on right now at topdrawersoccer.com. Yeah, we are in full postseason mode, whether it's men's or women's D1. Obviously, you know, that's the focus for us, but uh, check check out topgrowsoccer.com. Follow me on Twitter at Travis M. Clark or you know, follow our, our our website at Top Grow Soccer on all the social media accounts. Travis, thanks again for uh, joining us here. Uh, enjoy the rest of the weekend and Selection Monday and the postseason. It's the, the best time of year. And uh, Keep up the great work, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks. Anytime, and enjoy that game on Saturday.
And thanks again to Travis Clark from Top Drawer Soccer for joining us here on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast, breaking down the men's soccer picture. Uh, let's get through a few things here before we wrap up. Women's soccer, we touched on that with what happened in the conference tournament with Memphis and South Florida getting shipped out. Uh, Two-bid league from the league in the American and women's soccer. Of course, UCF not making it. They were eliminated in the semifinal of the American Conference semis in Memphis, lost to South Florida 2-1. to one. So their season comes to an end for Coach Sahadak and the Knights. Uh, and, and kind of a unique season for them. They go 11-4-4, pretty good record. However, the RPI kept them out. Their RPI was at 93. This was a down year in the American and women's soccer. They're ranked ninth, so you didn't get a lot of quality matches, really, in the league outside of Memphis and South Florida. And some things that kind of hurt the the, the, pro, the team this year for making the tournament, their schedule strength, uh, some of the teams they played, like, for example, Arizona State had a down year. UCF beat them 4-1. to one. Arizona State was a 136 RPI. Ohio State, a team that was figured to be at the near the top of the Big Ten, had a down year. They had a 170 RPI. West Coast trip, UC Irvine and Long Beach State had bad years. Both were in the 200s in RPI. Those are things you can't control. Uh, you just, how do you know type of thing. I think if it, it certainly, as they look back on their season, the results they're going to probably kick themselves about. There was that stretch where they had a draw early in the year at George Mason, 2-2. That really hurt them because George Mason's RPI was in the 200s. Temple, they had a draw with Temple, a scoreless tie as well as Connecticut. Uh, Temple's in the 200s, UConn in 140 RPI. That hurt them a little bit. The loss at Cincinnati, 145. All that, I think, contributed to them missing the tournament. Uh, I know people have been uh, email, you know, kind of messaging us here, Black and Open, me and Jeff, about well, what does that mean for the program? And, you know, let me get this straight. I think that everybody in that uh, program, knowing them, Coach Sadek, they should be the first to tell you they're disappointed they didn't make the tournament. That's the standard. That's the the bar, obviously, at women's soccer. But there were some unique circumstances with this team. It's a little weird, considering even before the season, you had two of their top players, but, uh, you know, they're coming into the season. They were without two of their best players. Dina Orgeman and Stephanie Sanders both decided to play professionally, go pro, and played over in Europe. Those are their two of their top playmakers. They were both sophomores, and they, you know, by losing them, there were a lot of people that cover soccer uh, on a consistent basis that thought UCF would have a rebuild year, uh, that they would probably be a middle-of-the-pack team. And really, I think it's a credit. This is a young roster, especially on the back line. You didn't know what you were going to get at goal, with a new goalkeeper. And instead, st- what you found out is Caroline Delisle is a stud, a redshirt freshman from Tampa. She'll be back. Olivia Lewis, a freshman out of Cooper City, Florida, in the back line plays well. You lose uh, – Kanya Plummer was the defensive player of the American Conference of the Year. And, you know, something is mentioned, she didn't play in the conference tournament. She got hurt at the last regular season match on Halloween against South Florida, did not play against Houston, did not play against South Florida due to that injury, and that hurt them a little bit. Uh, so that kind of hurt their progress a little bit. But this is a team that's got a lot of players coming back. Olivia Lewis, Olivia Smith, I thought in the back line, did a really great job with Delisle. This was a number one defense in the American. Only allowed three goals in the regular season. Uh, and they're they're going to be back defensively strong. You got up front players like Ellie Moreno, who really showed what she could do. Scored some goals big late. Scored the game winner against South Florida in the regular season finale. She was just a freshman out of Winter Park, Florida. Uh, Kristen Scott, 
One of their goal, leading goal scorers. She was just a sophomore out of Orlando. She returns. And you got talent like Ali Gudorf was just a freshman. Sonia Homan was a, is just a freshman. Played this year. Elise LeGroot, a sophomore. I'm just reading you. Uh, Matilda Kack, who's a defensive player, just a sophomore. You know, this was a team, Diana Martin, who really scored a couple goals in the win against Houston in the conference tournament. She's just a sophomore. So this is a team that had a lot of youngsters, freshmen and sophomores, they're going to have a recruiting class coming in. Um, I think next year they're set up to have a big year and a bounce-back year. And keep in mind, South Florida graduates their greatest player of all time in Viennes, who is the American Conference Player of the Year. So <laughs> we're, we're, they're very grateful about that. So I understand some people kind of disappointed. They're disappointed. But there was, it was a lot of youth on this team, a lot of questions. And, again, they lost arguably their two best players that was supposed to be on this team, and I shouldn't say supposed to because every sport you lose players that declare, decide to leave early for professional sports, uh, but you, you had this situation here with women's soccer. So I just wanted to share that since a lot of people have been talking about that uh, women's soccer season coming to an end. Uh, quickly to other notes, volleyball finishing up the regular season this weekend. They're at Temple and at UConn. They lost the big showdown match against Cincinnati on Sunday in four sets. Tight first two sets, the team split, and then Cincinnati really raised their level of play and went on a big-time run. They outscored UCF, as a matter of fact, during that stretch at, at some point to a 44-23 run. They won the third set 25-14, led like 19-9 in the fourth set. UCF made a run in the fourth set but came up short. So Cincinnati is a win away this weekend, or win away, or a UCF loss away from locking up the regular season championship and the number one overall seed for the upcoming uh, inaugural American Conference Volleyball Championship that will be held at UCF November 22nd through the 24th. Should Cincinnati lock up the regular season title? Remember, they have the tiebreaker, so they have a one-game lead with the tiebreaker. Uh, they just need one mat win. UCF will be locked into the three seed uh, for that conference tournament. And uh, in that scenario, remember the top because the top two seats go to the division champion winners. The West is still yet to be decided. That's going to come down to the last match. Uh, but you have the East pretty much settled the UCF in Cincinnati situation there. Uh, UCF will be at Philadelphia, then at UConn, trying to improve their resume. They're 19 and seven overall on the season, 12 and two in the conference. Uh, and they just you know want to build strong. You want right now the league's looking like a two bid league. UCF's in good shape. You don't want to have a setback that could put you in the bubble uh, going into the conference tournament situation there. And they pretty much know. You, we already know who the six teams are going to be in the American Conference Championship. We just don't know who the seeds, what seedings they will have at this point. But uh, we do know that Cincinnati, UCF will be there. SMU, uh, who currently leads the West with also Tulane and Houston uh, also will be there. Houston and Tulane will make the trip to Orlando, and SMU uh, will be certainly in the field uh, as well. And that you know, that's kind of a crazy Western situation there uh, that's going to come down to the wire with SMU at, near at the top, followed by Houston, Tulane, and then Tulsa. Tulsa is the other team that they will be making the trip to Orlando on that women's basketball dropped a couple decisions on the road losing to belmont uh pretty ugly score 72 37 belmont preseason pick to win the ohio valley conference 
and then losing to Florida Gulf Coast on Wednesday night, 72-50. to uh, Florida Gulf Coast has been a perennial power, by the way. 25, they've averaged, uh, 25 wins or more in the last nine seasons there. Coach Smesco in his 18th season there at Florida Gulf Coast, they've built a program that's been a power. They've been a perennial uh, NCAA tournament team. They're usually seeded from that 9 to 13. They upset people. They love to shoot the three. They're like the Golden State Warriors. They'll chuck up about 43s a game. And if they're hitting them, you got you got a big problem. And that's what happened on Wednesday night. Florida Gulf Coast hit 16 threes on Wednesday night, whereas UCF only hit 19 field goals, period. And it's tough to win that way. Florida Gulf Coast has a great player in Davian Wingate, who is the daughter of David Wingate, uh, who was a longtime NBA veteran, played a decade in the league, was part of the Georgetown Men's Basketball National Championship team in 1984. That's a very talented place. They're tough to beat in Fort Myers, and it was a tough one for women, uh, Coach Abe and her team as they've had a couple of some adverse results here on the road. Remember, it's a team that's got a lot of new faces. I think they're still trying to find their identity, especially defensively. Uh, you know, that was one of the questions. No Nye Schuler. She graduated. You know, you know, in years past, Nye Schuler would probably get the assignment of trying to guard Wingate. Do they have that player right now? We don't know. It's still a young team. It's early. But certainly concern on the defensive side, giving up 72 points in back-to-back mat- um, games. Uh, perhaps a little alarming. But then again, when you have so many new faces, you kind of figure they might struggle early defensively. We'll see how they, if they can salvage their road trip coming up on Saturday as they're at Stephen F. Austin. Uh, that'll be a 4 o'clock ma- uh, game tip-off from Stephen F. Austin before they come back home against Delaware on Sunday, November the 24th. All right, that will do it. But before we wrap up, some breaking news. Uh, some breaking news. Brian Murphy not with me on this segment. We recorded the segment with Murph earlier. Part of the reason for that is because on Thursday morning, Brian Murphy was part of the media that had a chance to talk to Mackenzie Milton. Mackenzie Milton Speaking with the local media for the first time this year, uh, we'll have more on this developing story in the coming days and a week. We'll talk more about this next week's episode on the Black and Go Banneret podcast, uh, and we'll certainly have stuff up on the pod on the site Black and Go Banneret as Mackenzie Milton speaking for the first time to the local media. Here's a little snippet of what Mackenzie Milton had to say to the media. Um. I can't run yet, can't jump yet, so, um, but, you know, in the near future, that'll probably be something that will be progressing, physical therapy, so, I mean, it's getting close to that point, and then I think I'll start stacking blocks, and, you know, it'll start be like a little avalanche effect where, you know, I just keep getting better, better. But you back in. Sorry, sorry, Mark, one more thing. Yeah, you still feel optimistic, though, about your, your progress and how it's going? Yeah, absolutely, I mean. You know, 50% of these cases, you know, you don't have a leg. So, very optimistic. You know, my nerve feels great. I got full feeling in my foot. So, I'm building up strength right now. So, I'm very grateful. Uh, I got a little baby quad coming back. Hamstring muscles are there. So, I mean, it's rolling right now. And you know, I still got a ways to go. Like, I'm not, you know, saying I'll be playing next week or anything like that. But it's getting there. Back in August, you said about how the nerve is 100%. And you're just about building up strength. Since then, these last few months, what has been maybe... Um, the most um, encouraging goals that you've hit in these last few months in your rehab? Um, being able to push some weight in some squats, uh, pushing heavy weight in leg press, doing some walking lunges, stuff like that, just doing some more athletic movements and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know, just kind of feeling like an athlete again, I guess. 
Where is Bridgewater's success this season for the Saints motivation? Absolutely. You know, I actually had Traquan get me in contact with him, just asking him, you know, how long did it take to help have him feel normal? How long did it take to get him out of his brace playing? And, and, you know, he's just, I mean, first of all, he's a God-fearing man. And, you know, and that's what he's he's harped on, you know, since he got hurt. And just seeing him ball out at the Saints is, is eye-opening. And other guys, Jalen Smith, you know, those guys had devastating, perhaps maybe career-ending injuries in some eyes. And, you know, they're two of the best players in the NFL. Or, or how far have you come and how far do you have to go? You know, it's not necessarily a, a timeline right now. It's just kind of day-to-day. But, I'm, you know, I'm busting my, my butt, you know, while the guys are at practice in the weight room with uh, David Young, one of our strength coaches. You know, he pushes me, Bam, and uh, Alec Haller. Um, we're all knee guys right now. And it's kind of cool just to have guys to lean on um, while we're both struggling. I mean, all three of us are struggling, you know, trying to trying to get back right. So, um but, I mean, we're all pushing wave. We're all just, you know, just trying to better ourselves. What is the next goal in your rehab that you're trying to reach? And get this brace off. That's that's the next goal. And it should be, it should be some, some point in the near future I'll get this off. Just normal day function. And then I'll move to a sports-specific brace. What's the dream now? Um, dream's the same. You know, I want to go to the NFL one day. I want to play football. Um, and then, I, you know, I want to coach after that. You know, that's been my dream since I've been in high school. So none of that's changed. Um, that's still that's still the goal. How much has this year of being sort of a de facto coach changed your perspective a little bit on what it means to be a coach? Down you know, um, they put in a lot of hours. I mean, just, a, just as a player, as a quarterback, you put in a lot of hours. But, you know, you don't get a lot of time with your family, which is hard. You know, I mean, us as players, you know, we're the coaches. We're an extension of their family. So just the sacrifice that they make, but, you know, that's something I'm willing to do. Has it made you want it more now that you've seen it sort of up close? I think so, you know. Um, I mean, football's a beautiful game when it's done right. Um, it, honestly, I feel like it's a form of art when, you know, all 11 pieces are moving in the right way. And, you know, I've been around some great coaches from Coach Frost to Coach Hype to Coach Levy. Um, I mean, they're as good as it gets. So, you know, if I could emulate those guys when my time comes, it'd be pretty cool. All right, that's just a snippet of this uh, Thursday morning, this breaking news. It's breaking as we finish recording this episode of Mackenzie Milton speaking to the local media for the first time. They spoke for about 15 minutes. Uh, that's just a little snippet of it. Make sure you cover – you go to blackandgobanneret.com. We'll have extensive coverage of this. Also, make sure you follow Brian Murphy at spokes underscore Murphy. He has going to post a ton of the video of that interview with Mackenzie Milton as he sp- spoke with a lot of the media there. Again, this is the first time we've heard from Mackenzie Milton all year long. He was made available today. He spoke for about 15 minutes. Says he's, he heard what he had to say about how he's feeling health-wise and, and still his aspirations to still play. So that is big news, developing story there. He also, in the in that 15 minutes, he talked about how he feels about Dylan Gabriel and how he's played and things like that. All of that, we're going to be covering that uh, in the coming days and next episode of the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Check it out, blackandgoldbanneret.com. Make sure you follow Brian Murphy. I'm sure he's going to have a write-up about it as well. Uh, on, and then you will know, break it down on spokes underscore Murphy for the in-depth uh, video of Mackenzie Milton speaking again Thursday morning. Media availability for the first time this year. Mackenzie Milton, almost for almost a year to that horrific uh, scene and injury uh, that he suffered 
on the Warren I-4 in Tampa against South Florida a year ago. And uh, in a lot of ways, perhaps changed the direction of this program uh, in that moment. As obviously, But who knows? Maybe we'll see uh, Mackenzie Belton down the road. But that will do it. For this episode on the Black and Go Banneret podcast, a little longer there with the breaking news. We wanted to make sure we get that in as Mackenzie Milton speaks to the media on Thursday morning. Thanks to Brian Murphy who joined us earlier. Thanks to Travis Clark from Top Drawer Soccer. Make sure you all hopefully come out to the soccer and track and field complex this Saturday night for what should be a magnificent match as number five ranked UCF takes on number 10 SMU in the uh, American Conference Championship match, perhaps. With the win, UCF can earn a top four national seed. We'll find that out Monday at 4.30 Eastern um, on the Selection Show. So, for Brian Murphy, I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Go Banneret Podcast.